This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to the Table. We discuss issues of God and culture, and our topic today is part of our World Religion series. Although, in this case, we've got a little bit of an unusual category. It's animism, and our guest is Ken Nerbas, who is Associate Professor of Intercultural Studies and Program Director uh, uh, of the Intercultural Studies area at Biola University. Ken, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, and uh, and we're gonna we're gonna be discussing animism, which is really an array of stuff. So, uh, and it's not a formal religion in the way we would normally think about it. And as our discussion is going to make clear, the people who engage in animism aren't necessarily thinking of themselves as being. Uh, necessarily particularly religious, so we'll go. Th- we'll cover all that ground. But Kim, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about your background and and how, um, you know, how how a nice guy like you ended up in a gig like this. So, um, all right. When I was uh, about eighteen years old, I read a book called uh, Peace Child by Don Richardson. And oh, yeah, sure. He'd gone to uh, Indonesia then. It was called Irian Jaya. Mm-hmm. Uh, lived with a, a tribal people, learned their language, and um, translated the New Testament. And when I read that, I said, living in the outdoors, working with the Bible, and learning another language, that's me. Uh-huh. So I knew I was going to do it and finished my seminary degree, and then my wife and I um, Got our linguistics training with Wycliffe, and uh, we didn't know it where Vanuatu was in the world. But someone in Wycliffe said, "Why don't Can you I go to Vanuatu?" Vanuatu. Yeah, I, I, I imagine most people have no idea where Vanuatu. We is. didn't either. Okay. Uh, it's 500 miles west of Fiji. Okay, and that uh, may or may not help people. Okay. That's good. <laughs> um, so to make it sound more remote, it's 1,500 miles north of New Zealand, or 1,500 miles east of Australia. So it's in the middle of the South Pacific. Okay, there you go. Yeah. All right, so it's one of those dots. Yes, it's a dot, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, we didn't know anything about the South Pacific or the tropics, but uh, someone in Wycliffe said, you know, there's 106 languages there. Hmm. Uh, they're maintaining their languages, so it's not like uh, other, you know, maybe in Australia, um, even First Nations, United States, Canada, um, where there are a lot of languages, but people are... Uh, forgetting those languages to, mm-hmm. in order to speak English. Uh, but they're maintaining their languages, and so they said, you know, 106 languages, almost no New Testaments translated in any of those. So we uh, decided, sure, we'll go live there and learn the language, write an alphabet, create a dictionary, uh, teach people to read their language, um, and uh, and translate the New Testament with them. So. Uh, this doesn't sound like you uh, – I mean, maybe you did get a degree in, in theology, but it sounds like you also trained in another discipline. Am I right about that? Yeah. Uh, Wycliffe requires a mixture of anthropology and 
linguistics, mm-hmm. uh, they do prefer also a background. You have to have a certain amount of Bible uh, mm-hmm. background to pull it off. But there's also within the organization a lot of experts in exegesis, Old and New Testament, who mm-hmm. they check your exegesis as long as you're learning the language and and getting a team to translate with you. So you've got an anthropology background. Now, again, this might be an area that people may or may not be familiar with. So what does an anthropologist do? I mean, the term itself, I mean, I'm a Greek New Testament guy, so the moment I hear anthropology, I'm I'm the study of of humans. But uh, um, so what does an anthropologist do? Well, uh, we were living with a, a people that we found we thought of as more or less very similar to us, but we found out that there were um, drastic differences in worldview. Mm-hmm. And the time when I realized that wow, the people we're living with are so different, I need to spend some time learning about a different people and learning how to learn from them, what they believe, what makes them tick, what their values are. Mm-hmm. We, there was a man who was digging a well mm-hmm. on Sunday mm-hmm. on our island, and it was in the sand, and it collapsed on him. And the people in our village said, well, of course it collapsed on him. It was Sunday. Hmm. And I said, what do you mean by that? Well, God killed him. He was sinning. He was working on Sunday. It's called Sunday Sick. Hmm. And then the Seventh-day Adventists on the island said, no, God killed him because he left the Seventh-day Adventist church. and. You know, so God killed him. Hmm. And that's when I realized uh, I don't know a lot about the people we're living with that uh-huh. we've moved in with. So uh, I went to Biola to, to answer that question, really. I wanted a PhD on intercultural studies to study um, how do you uh, li- do field work, how do you understand a- another culture's values, uh, social systems, their. Um, uh, attitudes about life and their religions. As so, well. so an anthropologist studies the way people in societies basically work, and the in the way in which, uh, and the in the different ways in which uh, people groups operate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they have an applied purpose, study culture for the purpose of. Uh, you know, improving the the rights of women or for um, community development. Uh, I think that mostly missionaries study anthropology so that they can understand the culture well enough to present Christ in a way that can change the culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, hmm. yeah. Okay, so let's let's shift gears here. Uh, I've already suggested that animism is a is an interesting area and it's an interesting term. Let's talk a little bit about that. I mean. Uh, I, I, we were talking before we started to record. I said, I don't know anyone who walks up and says to me, I am an animist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, one, what are we talking about? And two, how, I think the way to ask this is, how does, how does animism relate to religion? How should we think about that relationship? Mm-hmm. Well, animism is a system of beliefs and practices that is fundamentally centered on the idea that the, that the world we live in on Earth is impacted by supernatural activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it could be personal or impersonal. The impersonal activity could be uh, evil eye, mm-hmm. um, charms and amulets, sacrifices, if they're not particularly to a god, but mm-hmm. just, you know, you kill the chicken so your child gets better. Uh, it could be bad luck or fate or karma, um, as well as enchanted rivers and, and you know, doing a rain dance. Uh, and then the personal forces could be ghosts, spirits. Um, once you once these personal spirits begin to be kind of like gods, you move out of animism into polytheism. Mm-hmm. Now it may seem like when I talk about 
magic and witchcraft and sorcery or voodoo and such that it sounds either like uh, it's the thing of fairy tales or you know that no one mm -hmm. alive must must practice this but in reality most uh, people from Africa South America um, throughout the Pacific and even in many parts of Asia have beliefs that the supernatural world impacts life on earth and so they read tea leaves um, they avoid walking under a ladder or letting a black cat cross their path mm -hmm. or um, they uh, perform, like I said, rain dances or they see a shaman to heal their uh, child. So this is basically um, the variety of ways in which humans connect to supernatural forces, but it isn't, it isn't run by explicit doctrines. There's no holy book, or if there are, it's it's related to incantations and that kind. Of, you know how to how to engage the spirits, if you will. So so it's 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 basically um, an approach that that attempts to be sensitive to the spirit world that's around us. Is that mm -hmm. be a Generic, good generic description of it. Yeah, some anthropologists have tried to describe uh, what goes, what we call animism, right. as as basically magic. Uh -huh. uh, others have thought that it was primarily about uh, the soul. What happens? You know, why do you get sick? Does your soul leave? Um, others have thought, you know, had had like Freud had other explanations. It was um, basically wishful thinking mm -hmm. or uh, displacement of desire. So different people have had different ways of explaining it, but. Uh, Universally, there's just a sense that um, when something bad happens, it wasn't just an accident. Mm -hmm. That's really like the – even though there's no holy book, that's the tenet. Like number one uh -huh. proposition would be if something bad happens, someone must have caused it. Either I did something bad or you did something bad to cause me to have – uh, a misfortune in my life. So you're negotiating with the invisible world in a lot of ways. Trying to control it. Mm -hmm. um, in that sense, it's more appealing um, maybe than belief in a distant God because maybe I don't have any control over a God who dwells in heaven mm -hmm. who I've never seen, but at least I can take this rock into a garden and wash it and make my uh, breadfruits grow or my coconuts, you know. So, healthy. and I imagine it takes many forms. It can uh, uh, the spirits can be seen as being detached from nature. The spirits can be seen as being within nature. I mean, how, what's the relationship to the natural material world? Yeah, I think that um, outsiders have tried to locate. You know, what is this spirit? What is it in the rock? Yeah, is yeah. it in the river? I don't know that many animists feel a need to answer or to systematize it to make it coherent or to – they just would say, well, it's just a fact. It's just a brute fact, you mm -hmm. know. The way that the universe works is that river is enchanted. That rock mm -hmm. makes, uh, you know, makes a coconut tree grow without mm -hmm. needing to explain um, where the spirit is or why it's there or how you know that really. Even. Yeah. And in fact, one of the interesting things in trying to prepare for this, since I'm not an animist, uh, is um, – is actually reading the variety of ways in which this has manifested itself globally. Um, so, uh, in in Vanu, in, I'm going to say this wrong. In Vanu, is it Vanuatu? You got it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, you came across this. So talk a little bit about – so you're coming from the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, um, Wycliffe has uh, encouraged you in relationship to your gifts to go and translate the Bible into this culture. You walk, you 
in and you realize, I really don't know what makes these neighbors tick, um, and you decide to take that on, and boom, you encounter this. Do you remember what that was like? I mean, mm-hmm. I think the first Sunday we were there, uh, we were at a church service. The leading elder in the church, the church had been planted for two years there in, in this people group. So the church is very, very new. Very new, oh, no, no New Testament, okay. um, yeah, or you know, no scripture, no right. hymns in the language. Uh-huh. Um, so what someone from outside of the language group had come in and said, uh, here's how you go to church. You build a building out of bamboo, you stand up, sit down, put on a white shirt, uh, black pants, you're an elder, you're an elder, you're a deacon, you're a deacon, sing these songs in English, read this book in English, you know. Uh-huh. And um, That's really basic Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not very heavy on the doctrine, yeah, on repentance. Yeah, and, right. So, uh, yeah, the first Sunday we were there, uh, the leading elder came up and said, do you have rainstones in America? And I didn't know what a rainstone was. And, mm. You know, as a missionary, I probably should have known what a rainstone was before uh-huh. I got there. But no, if I don't know what it is, we probably don't have them. Uh-huh. Well, how does it rain then? Well, the clouds are kill- I don't know how it rains. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, that, that was our first introduction. Uh, when um, it, the, the uh, leading elder was also a shaman who traced his ancestry back to a certain devil, Hmm. Uh, and um, he described certain sicknesses as being yellow, or if someone got sick, he would uh, chew on a certain leaf and sit under a certain tree that was enchanted uh, that would make your body go numb if you went near it, hmm. and he would divine why you got sick. Um, and so these were uh, – it was very common for – one of the church leaders was in charge of making the taro, which is like a starchy potato. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would send him off for six months to um, – to do the magic to make the taro grow, but he was also an elder in the church. And so there was no um, sense that this was peculiar or non-Christian because uh, if, if I had said, oh, you know, don't do magic, don't um, trust in evil spirits, oh, they would agree entirely because doing the rainstone isn't magic for them. It was just a law of nature. This stone, everything in the earth is created by God. The stone was created by God, therefore in some syllogism, uh, God must have created this stone. The stone makes rain, God gave us the rain stones, and so we're actually fulfilling our uh, Genesis 2.15, you know, commandment to be fruitful and multiply by making rain, making taros grow, healing our kids through chewing on leaves. Managing the earth. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Uh, one of the characteristics this actually raises an observation, which is one of the characteristics of animism is, is it often shows up as a kind of in the church as a kind of syncretism where you get this mixture of what is called popular folk religion into uh, in, into and as dressing around or through. Uh, the Christianity that one might run into. You've made an interesting observation that I think we ought to discuss, and that is um, uh, that in some of the societies where you come into animism, Christianity's been around for a while, and and the powers that be associated with animism react to it. In other cases where Christianity is so new, it's like the the, ten, the the tendency will be to make some type of combination or something like that with it. So, so the situation that you were in is a situation where where Christianity was so new there wasn't there there wasn't that kind of reaction to it. Whereas you were telling me you're aware of other places where people are engaged in missionary work where Christianity's been around and there's 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 a there is a counter theology, if you will, at work. Yeah. Why don't you talk a little bit about that? 
uh, on our island where we lived on is called Tana. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Patton, famous missionary, uh, mid 19th century, came, uh, landed there four years, was run off the island. He had told people, "Don't, uh, don't do magic. Basically, don't, don't um, worship your coward." These were magical stones, mm-hmm. and they thought, "Here's a person who's trying to ruin our life." Yeah. He, he was saying, don't let your gardens grow, you know, don't have healthy kids, don't let it rain, because he was telling them to, to get rid of the thing that made life possi- possible. Uh, where we were, um, John Patton's uh, influence had not extended, so um, there was no um, – sometimes animism goes underground. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the church might say that um, – Dancing, I don't. I don't mean American style dancing. You know, I mean yeah. animistic style. Right. You know, dancing to make it rain or dancing connected with immorality is uh, don't do it or um, don't don't make sacrifices with chickens to make your kids um, healthy or something. So it goes underground and they hide it. But where we were, we had told them we're here to learn your culture. We want to live with you. And so we actually had people knocking on our door, you know, in the morning to wake us up and say, hey, you got to come see this dance we're doing. We're going to make it rain. Or uh, as a matter of fact, one time they said, we're going to make the sunshine. Uh, We want to borrow your truck. And so don't look at the wood and don't touch the wood because it's holy, but just back your truck up to the tree and we'll chop it down and, and cut it up into small pieces and put it in your truck and you bring it back. Well, that's a, a good example of syncretism. You've got a modern-day truck driving them, and you've got the missionary driving the wood up into the village that they're going to use um, to do some ritual to make the sun shine, a, a special um, – uh, someone who calls himself a descendant of the sun takes a certain sunstone, puts it in a basket, cooks it over this um, wood that they've cut down in a secret hut and makes it makes. So there are a lot of ritualistic practices. There are a lot of formula that go with this. And, and if you read about this, as I started to allude to this earlier and didn't finish, in reading about animism, the interesting thing is is that you get a section where it raises the issue of animism, and then the subsection is, well, it shows itself in a variety of samples from around the world and the way this shows up. Probably the most direct experience I have of animism is uh, visiting Chichi Castanango in Guatemala, which is um, in, in right in front of the Catholic Church. You have people of Indian uh, – of uh, Indian background from Guatemala, Guatemalan Indians, who um, who have taken the variety of practices from their popular folk religion, and right on the doors of the church are performing a variety of rituals. In some cases, some of the people will you know go in and participate in the activities of the church and come out and do what they do. And in other cases, you've got people who don't want to have anything to do with the church because it's been around a long time and they recognize that it's a challenge to them and what they believe. So, yeah. which which brings us to the um, to the contrastive situation, which is that in places where Christianity has has come and in some cases established itself or begun to establish itself, the animistic community sometimes is reactive to the presence of the Christians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, certain practices, you know, can be very fuzzy. If I take a Bible. And lay it on your head. Is that um, kind of just symbolic, or am I doing something animistic? Do I think that I'm healing you because I have the power, mm-hmm. or because now God has to obey me because I put a Bible on your head? Mm-hmm. So uh, the church has a hard time working out in each of its contexts what it, what is it going to outlaw and what is it not, and. Uh, that's the problem. Whenever it says this is off limits, then people will just continue doing that and do it underground. Mm-hmm. They might pay the um, 
shaman on the side. They, typically, what people will do is they will they will hedge their bets and try try all uh, avenues. That's Go right. to church, obey all of the church's rules, uh-huh. um, give your you know maybe your tithe or something. Pray, ask the pastor for prayer and anointing, and go see the shaman and go to the hospital and get the pills. You know, uh-huh. so um, I think they're hedging their bets on, mm-hmm. often. You know, I just realized we've been using a term that we've assumed people know what it means, but they might not know what it means. A shaman. What's a shaman? Shaman uh, maybe a medicine doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, usually involves leaves and stones and and make, maybe going into a trance to decide why you're sick. Uh, it is kind of a global phenomenon. Uh, sometimes it's only men. Sometimes it's, it's actually holy women instead. Uh, Korean shamanism um, uh, has uh, often has holy women. Uh, usually it's older people who are near death, and so they're seen as practically into the spirit world, so they can. Uh, exert that influence. Usually uh, a shaman has to have some sort of supernatural experience in their life to get that status, mm. you know, near death, struck by lightning, mm-hmm. um, or just had a vision or a dream. And, and so, but again, people will hedge their bets. They'll go pay different shamans, you know, you get a chicken, you get a chicken, you get a chicken, and whichever you figures out why I'm sick and I get better, you're the one that did it or that healed it. Interesting. So, uh, so the, the interesting thing about this is, is that it really does manifest itself in a variety of ways around the world. And yet, at the same time, there are certain consistent things about it as well. That the, mm-hmm. um, it is a concern with the spirits, a concern to either control or placate or or honor the spirits in such a way. There, uh, one thing we haven't talked about yet may have to extend to the other side of the break is the role of ancestors in some of these movements and the way in which uh, they are viewed, so that it's a it becomes a way of connecting to family and family history. Um, uh, I don't know how much you uh, want to say about that now, but uh, ancestor associations and the spirit of ancestors are often in play here as opposed to impersonal spirits that I can't identify or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, actually one of the – probably one of the fundamental aspects of animism is that it's very localized. Mm -hmm. Um, I call it ecocentric in that uh, it's – it, it's very much tied to a place, more than Christianity, which, yes, it, it did have it, – it is tied to Israel, to events that happened 2,000 years ago. But uh, within animism, this, these rocks work in this river. These leaves are, you know, are localized for healing in this area. And so even the, the holy people in animism are your ancestors. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, – in kind of the South Pacific, uh, Melanesian, Polynesian animism, things are more nebulous. People aren't really elevated to the level of um, spiritual uh, – you know, people who, who've died in the past, they, they can't name these spirits. Mm-hmm. Whereas in African um, animism, typically they can name recently deceased ancestors who mm. uh, they would maybe pour out a little bit of wine or maybe spill chicken blood and say that ancestor's name or pay someone who's related to them to go off into the spirit world and heal their child who's sick or make their garden grow. Okay. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like 
Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. We've talked about magic. We've talked about the presence of spirits. We've talked about ancestors. We haven't talked so much about rituals. Um, what what rituals are associated with animism, or the kinds of rituals? Probably a better way to ask the question. Um, uh, and you said that people would come and say, "Oh, you've got to see this. This is mm-hmm. this is part of what we do." Um, so, talk a little bit about that. Uh, it seems to be a human universal. All cultures seem to have both rites of passage and rites of intensification. Mm-hmm. The rites of passage in animistic societies, can there can actually be many from, uh, just to give our, our island as an example, Tana in Vanuatu, uh, the, uh, when a child's born, um, they would have a ritual, the woman goes into hiding when his umbilical cord falls off when his first first tooth falls out. Mm-hmm. The uh, interesting thing we haven't mentioned about animism it is uh, a belief in two kinds, uh, two laws um, uh, uh, about nature. Mm-hmm. One is uh, the law of contagion, which is if the two things that used to be in contact with each other continue to exert an influence on each other. So if a tooth falls out of a baby, that's spiritually charged. And if you get hold of that tooth and burn it in a fire, my, my child might have a fever. Hmm. And so they need these rituals to decrease the anxiety of the umbilical cord fell off. Hmm. What if someone gets it? Hmm. Um, bury it well, burn it well, do something magical or, or supernatural to avoid the law of contagion that someone might perform black magic on my child. And of course, if your child dies, then everyone looks back and says, well, what would you do with the first tooth when it came out? What would you do with the umbilical cord? Did your wife go into hiding after the placenta came out? What would you do with the placenta? Um, The other law is the law of um, imitation, which is that things that sound or look alike exert an influence on each other. Mm -hmm. So if I make the sound of rain, it'll rain. If Mm -hmm. I make something that looks like a coconut wet and and healthy, basically, you know, smooth it all up, um, then my coconuts will be healthy. Uh, so um, these rituals are, exist to decrease the anxiety about the spiritual nature of, of life, or these laws. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, beyond the, um, the first tooth, then a, f- a puberty ritual, that's seen as a very dangerous period in life. Are you a man or a boy? Or, you know, um, how do you fit into society? And, and very anxiety-producing. And so. Uh, we'll put you in hiding until we know you're safe. You're not. You're no longer spiritually dangerous. And funerals, of course, are the biggest example of when you die. Uh, we don't know how long your spirit's going to hang around and, and taunt us. Mm-hmm. So a funeral can last a month. You can't shave. You can't um, peel any potatoes or anything because you might cut yourself. You can't stay inside that person's house. It might collapse on you. And so animistic funerals can be very involved and burn everything related to that person and don't say their name ever again because we don't know how long that spirit hangs around. So those are the rites of passage related to animism. Hmm. There can be many more. Right. And then there's the rites of intensification, which are done as a, uh, at a festival level, community-wide, uh, usually on an annual uh, Basis related, to, usually related to agriculture or the moon, for instance, right. throughout the world. So, in in Western European history, you know, we had May Day, which was kind of a spring fertility ritual. Um, there's new moon rituals. Again, it's it's fear about 
uh, is it last month or this month? Is it a spiritually charged time? Rituals uh-huh. uh, where we lived, there was a ritual every single night at sunset, hmm. which was seen as the most spiritually charged time of day because it was neither day nor night. Were the spirits out? Had they been in the daytime? You would assume spirits wouldn't be as active. I guess uh-huh. something in animistic logic would say that. But right at sunset, and so that's the time when you every day they would make an incantation to the spirits and mm-hmm. uh, get stoned on a on a pepper plant called kava uh-huh. uh, and communicate to the spirits. So. Oh. so, so there's a whole array of practices, and all this is designed to try and manage and control. Uh, or placate, or variety variety of motives, really, um, what's going on. And of course, this is global. This happens in different parts of the world. Uh, you were in the Pacific. I think you told me you were supervising a dissertation that deals with animism in Zambia, which has mm-hmm. some shared characteristics with some of the stuff you experience, and then some peculiarities. With uh, so so, it's it's a very localized, uh, I say, decentralized. Um, uh, response to the world that that we're dealing with here. So, in some senses, is a little harder to package than, say, a Judaism or an Islam mm-hmm. or a Buddhism. Um, let me let, let's shift gears here. What's the attraction? What um, what causes people to be an adherent? Um, yeah, fear, community. I mean, what what's going on? Mm-hmm. It seems. I think. Um, one of the attractive parts is you can control your life. Uh, if you do all of this magic, uh, do the, the umbilical cord ceremony right, do the funeral right, uh, do the new harvest ritual right and the new moon ritual right, then your food will grow, uh, you won't have any sicknesses. Um, and so there's this – it is a decreasing of anxiety or, or fear about what if something goes wrong. If you get along with people and you don't, uh, you don't go into the taboo places, then everything's going to go well. Um, that thinking is transferred to Christianity then in animistic backgrounds. So when we uh, came into our village, they explained to us, ever since we started going to church, there's been no sickness, no mudslides, no hurricanes, because mm-hmm. we're obeying all the rules, they were saying. Mm-hmm. Well, it, part of that was a, a bit disturbing to me because I had made a lot of hospital runs. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there was this need to kind of um, fit their life experience into their logic, which was surely if you do all of the rule, if you follow all of the rules, everything will not, go okay. Yeah, yeah. So there's a bit of a deception in there that um, you can be good enough and that your life will go well. Uh, so yeah, part of it's placating fear. I think part of it is common sense in that there seems to be built something into human nature that says, if you do something wrong, something bad should happen to you. Mm-hmm. That's just built into our – we feel like that's just. And so animism has a quick answer for that. Mm-hmm. It says, if your wife had a miscarriage, well, obviously you did something wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, If your son fell out of a tree, someone, did, someone caused that. And so there's common sense that um, – if someone was mean to you, they're going to get their just desserts someday. Hmm. And in a sense, they have a theodicy that works in that they're saying that everybody eventually gets uh, what's coming to them. Hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. It's uh, and are there, uh, uh, there? There's a sociological dimension to this too. Everyone kind of shares in this locally, and so it becomes. Uh, is does it become localized? Is there any kind of 
community that's attached? I mean, these rituals mm-hmm. are designed to attract groups, aren't they? They aren't right. just individualized? Yeah, I'm very glad you caught on that. Yeah. Um, it is very much about social cohesion. Typically, animism throughout the world is related to uh, the production of, of food, mm-hmm. food supply. And so you would have clans. This is true from Australia to uh, the South Pacific to Africa. Um, where one clan is seen as, let's say, the the wheat clan, and mm-hmm. one's the pig clan, and one's the corn clan, or something, and um, each of them is in charge of a certain ritual throughout the year, where uh, they engage in this ritual, and then they uh, they're paid for it by the other clans, and so you need to keep those people on your good side, because if you don't pay them the homage, the um, really, the mats, the pigs, the chickens, in payment for them doing their corn sacrifice or their yam sacrifice, mm-hmm. then uh, then maybe you'll have a bad harvest. So there's something that says we need to keep all of you in al- in allegiance to us. We need to. It's an alliance that says as long as we all get along and and keep reciprocating um, and looking out for each other, then we'll keep taking care of each other's food supply. Um, and uh, the other, just an example of how that affects Christianity. Uh, let's say that one man is uh, is the potato, you know, is in charge of the potato magic, mm-hmm. and he decides he's going to be a Christian and he's no longer going to do potato magic. Mm-hmm. That's not his decision to make, because he lives in a community of 250, 500, a thousand people that says, if our potatoes don't grow, it's your fault, and they can be absolutely furious about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, he will be blamed then probably not just for a potato failure, but for every single accident that happens in the village is because you weren't doing your part. Hmm. Um, and so it really keeps uh, the the belief in these rituals uh, tied to clan allegiances, keeps the, uh, perpetuates it. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to break out of it. Hmm. Uh, or you are responsible for sickness, mudslides, um, deaths, and... Yeah, interesting. So let, let's let's shift gears a little bit because uh, I mean, you know, not everyone lives on Vanuatu, uh, and so uh, but they might and they might encounter animism if they travel and go out and visit. Um, oftentimes, in in uh, especially in rural areas and that kind of thing, often uh, it, uh, these activities are associated there. And we might think, well, we never see elements of animism in our own life. But in fact, aren't there overhangs of this that we do see and in, in some, if I can use the word, encroachment of its presence in in our own context that we might encounter? It might not – I mean, animism doesn't have a formal character, so it's, it's like it it's there and around, but you don't – like I said, no one gawks up and says, oh, I'm an animist. So mm-hmm. so how do we see it – how might we see it in our own context? Where might people be yeah. experiencing this and be unaware of it? You know, it, it's shocking how recent we as Western Europeans uh, were uh, animists. Mm-hmm. And even post-Reformation, the Salem witch hunts and, you know, uh, but more recent, um, any sense – uh, well, we have it in our modern vocabulary. If I'm sending you positive energy, I, you know, just think good thoughts. The sense that um, you can control your environment by what you think. You mm-hmm. know, um, we uh, sometimes we talk about having bad luck, and I'm not sure if that means just a misfortune or that it's something that somehow accumulates around you. You know, you mm-hmm. uh, or if someone says, "Oh, you know, deaths happen in three, or, you know, uh, 
calamities has come together. Somehow there's something in the in the supernatural world that's causing tragedies to, to run together. Um, I think that the way it encroaches in our Christian faith a lot is this sense that if something bad happens, I must have done something wrong, uh, which of course there is um, it can be a view of God's sovereignty and God being involved in you know in the universe. All but, the details of life. Yeah, but it can also be just a sense of um, maybe maybe it's a sense that I, I had it coming to me, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of uh, of of God's sovereignty. Um, there's a, certainly a, a branch of animism that has uh, continued along in, in Western society in, in New Age, mm-hmm. uh, you know, charms and amulets. Crystals were popular in the 1980s. I don't know what the equivalent would be now, but mm-hmm. other behaviors related to animism, even um, getting high on marijuana, for instance, is often used in uh, – Societies as a way of communicating with spirits and mm-hmm. somehow entering a, a different, a more supernatural state. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, I, and I actually think in subtle ways it may be more prevalent than we tend to think. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, um, uh, I mean, something. I mean, something I remember growing up with. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. Is you know we used to play with Ouija boards and uh-huh. that kind of thing. That's a that that's an animistic like um, mysticism, if I can say it yeah, that way. Sense that the spirits are hanging around, right? And, yeah, that yeah, we can cause them to talk to us. So the tarot cards and the palm readers, and, exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's it, in some sense it's carnival, you know, entertainment or something. But for other people, there's this sense of uh, engaging the supernatural. Yeah, there's world. something real going on here. Um, Okay, well, let's shift gears again uh, and kind of go into our last uh, area, which is um, as we think about the way in which the gospel speaks into this. Now, you, there actually, you know, the interesting thing about what I've heard you describe, say, like with the potato man and that kind of thing, is there actually are societal structures that are built in place that are impacted by by engagement. Now, most people. That were they're listening to this aren't necessarily missionaries who are walking into that environment having to deal with that extent of reality, but but for the missionaries that they support who do end up being in those places, I imagine that's a real challenge to introduce the gospel into something, into a, into a culture that has this um, almost warp and woof character to it. That's wrapped into, over, under, around, and through the society that you're engaged with. Mm-hmm. I imagine that was a challenge when you were, um, of course, you were doing translation work, but but still, when you're when you're trying to introduce people to, you know, why they should read a New Testament, we should explain that when you go to an island uh, like you do uh, with Wycliffe, the goal is you're you're helping them. Um, discover their language, write and codify it, right, and then turn around and try and translate at least initially a New Testament. Ultimately, I guess the goal is to put the Bible in that language. And we're talking about societies, oftentimes where people they don't have dictionaries, they don't have, you know, they're 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 starting from scratch. Why don't you talk a little bit about how that works? Yeah, uh, well, that is the difficulty. You know, you you cannot just come in and show the Jesus film and feel like your work of evan- of discipleship is done because mm-hmm. of how tied uh, animism is to to society, to people's deepest worldviews. And so, um, Christianity has often said, kind of like what when I when we started with the podcast uh-huh. of. Um, 
the um, <laughs> you're gonna be able to know. <laughs> um, the the church said, "Stand up, sit down." Um, you know, sing these songs, but didn't really get to the deep underlying worldview behind it. And so it's easy to just present the gospel and say, raise your hand, you know, do you want to, um, to be a follower of Jesus? And people will say yes. You know, they, they love to just have a, Jesus Just here's another life. spirit I need to cope with. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even the, the God of the universe, the creator of all, sure, I don't have a problem with that. I buy yeah. that, you know. Yeah. But um, – uh, it takes a, it takes I think generations mm-hmm. of interacting with these passages of scripture to work out what do you do when you're sick what do you do when you want your garden to grow and you can't uh, solve that in you know in one year mm-hmm. even and so uh, the work of Bible translation is going through every single verse with a group of uh, speakers of the local language and working through what does this verse mean you know jesus got into a boat and crossed the river who got in the boat what's a boat like what's a river cuz a lot of these words are missing too from the languages what kind of boat you know what, yeah, what right. is a river yeah. and and then working through more difficult passages the book of romans you know mm-hmm. um, uh, there so, are concepts that they've never even that they didn't have categories for yeah even the book of acts uh, you know who were the uh, jews who were the uh, romans and you know, many peoples living in, in more tribal situations today don't really understand the dynamics of the Christians, the Jews, and the Romans in uh-huh. that uh, book. And so it can take, I think, generations really of the church um, theological training working through these passages to for the church to get to a point where it can answer uh, what it's going to do about animism. Hmm. So it's because it, it runs so deep, it's actually very. It, it, it is very, very hard to deal with and cope. And the other thing is, is that you're actually dealing with creating, literally creating a whole other way of seeing for people in terms of yeah. how they've viewed everything in their life. Yeah. Um, uh, missiologist Paul Hebert noted that what Christianity often did was it introduced a high God who loves you and solves your problem of, of sin and, and eternal life, mm-hmm. but that Christians often did not introduce the answer for day-to-day issues. Mm-hmm. How are you going to get food on the table? What are you going to do when there's sickness? How are you going to make sure it rains? And that if Christianity could present an answer that Jesus is better, that God is actually in charge of those things, He cares about those issues, then people wouldn't feel the need to turn toward their shaman to magic, mm-hmm. to witchcraft, sorcery, and such. Um, and so he called it the flaw of the excluded middle, which mm-hmm. was that Christianity was good at uh, you know, the material life and as far as education, um, you know, uh, caring for the family, uh, being humble, you know, so life on earth and good for the eternal things. But what about that middle area that people have such anxieties about? And so they will continue to um, turn to uh, magic and, and ancestral spirits until they have an answer from Christianity for that. Hmm. So, uh, so you go in, and the goal is uh, – I'm going to kind of separate into two things here – what you do when you're in the field, and then people who might encounter someone from an animistic background. That's where eventually where I want to get to. So you go in, and you try and provide them – well, first of all, you get them to understand how their language works and what the structure is and give them vocabulary and diction. I mean, you said creating a dictionary, which yeah. I, mean, I, I can't imagine anyone with the English language doing – 
doing that as a goal, uh, and 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 really helping them to be able to describe what goes on around them as a result, and then introduce Christianity into that into that mix with all the worldview that comes with it. That does seem like quite a challenge. It is. It yeah. is a. It's a longer than a lifetime challenge. Yeah. So you translate the New Testament, they have a New Testament, then you go to work or someone else does on the Old Testament. The goal is eventually to put the Bible in their language, and then they have uh, something that they can study and reflect on yeah. and get taught, et cetera. So that's, that's the goal of, of the types of things that Wycliffe is doing. Um, let's talk about uh, someone meets an animist, given the experience that you have with this. Um, how how do how does Christi- how do how do you inject Christianity into the conversation? What do you think is are some of the things to be aware of as you have that conversation? Mm. The good news is animists are very happy to talk about the supernatural, uh-huh. very happy to talk about God even. Um, so they're actually great mission fields if you want to have open conversations about uh-huh. about God. Um, the you know that God is loving and sovereign are two basic biblical truths that I think people from animistic backgrounds are not convinced of. Hmm. Um, and so that God is powerful, yes, but often animists see God as subservient to the rules. The rule is what goes around comes around, hmm. that bad deserves bad. And so God is almost subservient to that, that surely if, uh, if I sin, I have to be punished, period. You know, there's no way around it. Mm-hmm. But to show that God is actually above that and that He can forgive sins. Um, that and that he's loving and not just a, not just an impersonal force. So um, you know you can't just say it once and someone will be convinced. It does right. take a lot of conversations on if God's Father. What does that mean? Does he, is he loving? You know why? Why do you suppose he created us? Because he delights in us and and so it's, it would require. Um, years of working through, have you seen God faithfulness? Have you seen Him forgiving? Are there circumstances where um, He wouldn't cause, uh, you know, evildoers to receive their justice? So the, the cat- I imagine the category of grace becomes a problem. It in is, this, that in is this what's lacking. Yeah. In, in animistic background churches, the idea of grace is, uh, might be preached but not deeply believed. Mm-hmm. So you're constantly bargaining with the gods, and you don't know whether the gods are capricious or not, so you have to placate them or or cater to them to be sure that you're going to be okay and safe. Yeah. Um, You have to – even if God is loving, there's the sense in animism you still have to follow every single rule. Not And now that's what Christianity does is in, in addition to following all of the animistic rules, you have to follow all of the rules in the Bible as well. Uh-huh. And so in a way, it's just heap this extra law on So them the until, danger of the syncretism is, is that it can lead to a kind of legalism in relationship to Christianity that becomes a problem. Typically, animistic background churches are, are very legalistic. The other danger is much more subtle, which is this sense that when things are going well in your life, what does that say? Mm-hmm. You must be a great person. Uh-huh. You must deserve it. You know, you're, uh-huh. you're healthy because you've followed all the rules. And I think that that's equally deceptive, uh-huh. but um, we don't talk about that danger as much. Uh, th- you're doing well because God is good, you uh-huh. know, not because you, you followed all the rules. Yeah. Well, the challenge of presenting grace is always a problem because we always want to take credit for what happens to us. Yeah. And uh, uh, well, uh, Ken, I I thank you for taking the time to come in and talk with us about animism and to kind of give us a introduction of what it's like, its complexity, its depth, how it really does penetrate a society, and thus is very hard to deal with. On the other end, it's uh, been a, a fascinating trip. Um, we literally probably could bring in people 
from different parts of the world whose animistic experiences would be both similar and different, but the overall pervasive sense of how deeply people try and interact with spiritual forces when they believe that they're present is, is at the core of what animism is all about, and we, we thank you for helping us uh, understand a little bit about how that works. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, and we thank you for being a part of the table, and we hope you'll uh, join us again soon. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind. From mentoring one woman to leading a ministry, browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.